Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Years after the game, a bunch of former players from the 1990 team get together to watch the Mounties play on Thanksgiving Day. It's tradition, like an unofficial homecoming. Everyone's catching up, some of the guys are married, some have kids, and they realize someone important is missing. Their QB, number 12, Lamont Ponton. Ponton was definitely the, the next big thing. You know, he's like a superstar athlete. Always. And, you know, that's the whole thing. Even before high school, he was the standout guy. You know, we thought he was going to be like the next Quintus McDonald that went to the pros. You know, we just felt that he was that good. After the game, <laughs> he became invisible. Like, where's Ponton? What happened to Ponton? I don't know what it was that he went on to do. I don't know if colleges reached out to him. I, I have no idea. Few people seem to know what Lamont's been up to after high school. His name wasn't really mentioned in the local papers again after the game. He has a bunch of Facebook profiles that were abandoned over the years. Every once in a while, he pops online and says what's up to his old teammates. But then he goes dark again. Even to this day, I still don't know. I mean, even on social media, I don't see him post anything. And it seems like he doesn't want to talk to anybody or, or let anybody in. But something happened. Matt Bellis, the team's backup quarterback, was at that Thanksgiving game. He'd been looking forward to seeing Lamont. To Matt, he was still the football savant he'd looked up to in high school. Then someone told him where he might find Lamont, around a liquor store in town. Matt was surprised. It was a pretty chilly night, and it was Thanksgiving. Most people were going home after the game to have turkey dinner with their families. Why would Lamont be out? So after dinner... Matt decides to make a quick stop before he drives home. And there he was, just like himself next to the store. And I'm like, what the hell? And I, I didn't, I, I couldn't, I couldn't pull up. Matt felt a deep urge to reconnect, but he's not sure Lamont would feel the same way. So he turns the car around and goes back home to New York City with his wife. I've heard lots of stories like this one, rare sightings of Lamont rumors. I really wanted to talk to him myself. What was his life like after high school? And did the game still mean anything to him after all these years? But Lamont was like a ghost. I tracked down old phone numbers, emails, and addresses. Then in March of 2019, I got a text. This is Ponton. Finally, I found him. 
but when I called, he never answered. I texted or called on and off for the next two months. He responded to some messages and then just stopped. It seemed like maybe he didn't want to be found. But why? From Campside Media, Entertainment One, and NJ Advance Media, this is Lights Out. I'm Matt Stanmeyer, and this is Episode 6, Finding Ponton. Here it is, ladies and gentlemen. A theme of uh, so many moments. Maybe the last play of this game. Six seconds remain. They're all down on their knees praying. The kick is up. I talked to some of Lamont's old coaches and mentors, and they told me that he was so upset after the game that they had trouble getting him to school. They set up appointments for him to meet with several college coaches, but he didn't show up. I wondered why Lamont would walk away from an opportunity to keep playing the game he was so gifted at, and whether he felt any responsibility for the loss. He was the team leader, the senior quarterback who rarely made mistakes, and it was his short punt in the final seconds that allowed Randolph to go for the game-winning field goal. Steve Baffico told me no one ever blamed Lamont for anything, ever, unless you wanted to get beat up in the locker room. But it's possible he still carried it with him. My belief is it impacted him profoundly. He seemed to just kind of tune out after that. It certainly shouldn't define his career and his accomplishments, or the teams for that matter. But that's the funny thing about sport, you know? When you have the opportunity to compete on that stage, that's the greatest chance of your lifetime win-lose-draw, those also have profound impacts in the way you kind of view yourself over the course of your life. Those profound impacts? That's really the crux of this story. And I wondered if that had been true for Lamont. He was known for being confident and clear-eyed on the field. Nothing could shake him. So did this loss finally get to him? Was he just done with football? Or had something else gotten in the way? Lamont graduated in 1991, and then he kind of falls off the map and loses touch with his teammates. Garland Thornton believes that's just the way life goes sometimes. I know it had nothing to do with this game. Um, There might have been some other things. Who knows? It might have been something family or something internal. But I just know that he's still a friend of mine, and if he ever needs me for something, you know, I'm here. A few people have said this or something similar about Lamont. They still have his back no matter how many years have passed but there seemed to always be something left unsaid. So I did some more digging to see if I could find any record of Lamont speaking firsthand about the game in local newspapers or even in social media comments. I didn't expect to find much, because if there was one thing I knew about Lamont, it's that he's a man of few words. But then I found a story published in the Daily Record nearly a decade after the game. It was a nostalgic, full-page retrospective on the miracle at Montclair, featuring mostly players from Randolph. And in the bottom right corner, there's a separate, shorter piece titled, Pain of Loss Still Lingers for Montclair. It's the only interview I could find of Lamont after the loss. He said he still felt cheated. He said, quote, We played our hearts out. When anyone asks me if we lost to Randolph, I always say no. That's what the record book shows, but deep down inside, they did not beat the Montclair Mounties in 1990. For them to take that game away from me, It still hurts me. It was clear Lamont still felt strongly about what happened. And I wanted to know how he'd handled that pain, what it taught him, 
So in 2019, I went to an address I had for Lamont and Montclair. It's a four-story apartment building a couple blocks off downtown. When I got there, a woman wearing a Nebraska Cornhuskers hoodie was standing on the front porch of one of the units. She had a plastic bubble wand in her hand, and she was blowing bubbles for a toddler in a bright pink jacket. I walked up and told her I was looking for Lamont Ponton. She said he didn't live there. I didn't catch your name. Your first name? M-A-R-Y-A-N-N. Two words? Yeah. Marianne Ponton. Marianne Ponton is Lamont's mother. We talked for a while. She wasn't sure exactly where Lamont lived, but said he stops by once in a while. The little girl she was playing with is his granddaughter. Marianne was open for the most part, but concise. He was almost like a, like a hero around here, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You must have felt proud, right? Let me see. If you I always been proud of all my sons. Yeah. Because in the beginning, when they were small, I didn't want them to play football. No. No. And then they finally broke me down, and they've been playing um, football ever since they was like nine, ten years old. You didn't want them playing because of the safety issues. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. From my mother's point of view. Right. Well, I lost, and they won. What was Lamont like back then in, in those days? I mean, what, what kind of kid was he, would you say? He ate and he lived football. Mm-hmm. That was his life. Do you remember anything from after the game, like how disappointed he was, just because that was such a tough loss? And, and you know, they went from being possibly the best team ever to, you know, another team. It was the worst thing I think that ever happened to him besides my father passing. Really? Yeah. Did he take it particularly hard? Do you remember? Yeah, he took it very, very hard. And then it just went off the deep end. What do you mean by that? In case you missed that, she says Lamont started messing with drugs. I had no idea to what extent, but it was clear Marion had been troubled by this for a long time. I asked her if the game was what drove him off the deep end, as she put it. She told me she couldn't say what might have happened if they'd won, and she doesn't blame the game for anything. But Marianne wasn't the only person to mention Lamont's struggles. Matt Bellis was in a peer leadership group during high school. He was supposed to talk to younger students about abstaining from drugs and alcohol. And one year, one of those students stood out. And who's in the classroom I'm assigned to? Derek Ponton. Derek was Lamont's youngest brother. He had the same striking eyes and athletic build, the same cool vibe, but there's also an innocence about him. And I don't remember exactly what he said, but the gist of it was, look, I'm going to make better choices than my brother. Derek was four years behind Lamont in school, so he was in eighth grade the year of the game. And he'd watch closely as his big brother became a star. Like Lamont, he grew up playing for the Cobras and would follow in Lamont's footsteps and become the Mountie star quarterback. If there's anyone who would understand Lamont and what he went through, it would be Derek. Maybe he could lead me to him after all these years. So I head back to Montclair with Naomi, the show's producer. We have a long list of possible addresses. Oh, hi. Is this where the Pontons live? Oh, they, no? Lamont or Derek, no? Okay, I'm sorry. All right, thank you. Uh, hi, uh, we're looking for uh, Derek. Uh, no, he doesn't live there anymore. Um, we're looking for Derek. Uh-huh. No, we're still here at this apartment. Excuse me, miss. 
I was prepared to not have people want to talk to us, mm -hmm. but I wasn't really prepared to just not even be able to get a trace of them. Yeah. So then, so then, like what? Right. <laughs> We've been to four houses now, and all four houses are a bust. Even the Baptist church nearby was empty. We're also officially out of addresses, so we just start asking people on the street if they know the Pontons. Derek, Marianne, Lamont, any of them. The first woman we ask is just there delivering pizza. Another guy stares back blankly. Hey, sir, I'm trying to find uh, Derek Ponton. Do you know if he lives here? Then we hear a deep voice cut through the afternoon fog. Nah, they don't live here. They don't live here? Nah, Ponton's ain't been here forever. He's a tall, well-built man with a bushy beard. He has tattoos on his wrists, neck, and face, and he's wearing a blue-fitted hat pulled backward. And, of course... He played football at Montclair with Derek Ponton. What's your name? High school. I'm Jason Granderson. Jason Granderson? Uh, I'm Matt. This is Naomi. Hi, nice to meet you. We're writing about the uh, the 1990 football team in the yeah, 1990 season. Uh, Derek, you want his brother. You uh, know, both of them was a the quarterback. Well, we were primarily looking for Lamont, but we're actually looking for both. Do you know if Lamont's anywhere around here? Nah, finding Ab would be hard. That would be hard. Ab is one of Lamont's many nicknames. Hey, Ross, hey, Smooth, when the last time you seen Shape? Ab, Ponton. Jason confirms what I feared, that no one knows for sure where Lamont lives. But he does tell me he sees him around from time to time. He's even willing to reach out to Derek and put us in touch. We thank Jason profusely, then head down the street. And just as we're thinking about calling it a day, the phone rings inside my car. Hello? Hey, Matt, how you doing? This is Jason. I just spoke with you. Yeah, hey, Jason. Yeah, I just got in contact with Derek, so I told him to be expecting your call. Thank you, man. No problem. We've spent months looking for this number, and now, somehow, we have it. You want to try it now? We should, right? Yeah, I think so. Hi, is Derek there, please? Yes, this is Derek. More after the break. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. 
So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Derek, hey, this is Matt Stanmeyer. I'm a reporter from NJ.com and the Star Ledger. We'd love to, to chat with you if, if you have some time. Yeah, I mean, I'm not doing nothing right at this moment. When I spoke to Derek in the car that day, we ended up talking for nearly two hours. I had so many questions, and the conversation led us in so many different directions. His eldest brother, Roy, was actually sitting next to him the whole time. Roy didn't say much, but occasionally Derek would check with him about certain details. Derek told me all about his family. He and Roy worked together as contractors, and sometimes Lamont joins them for a job. They had a pretty typical childhood, and their parents were present and attentive. They both worked. Marion had a job at a local dental supplies factory, and their dad, Roy Sr., worked in manufacturing. Roy Sr. grew up on a farm in Seaboard, North Carolina, a speck on the map township near the Virginia border. And Derek remembers the family spending time there every summer. There were chickens in the backyard, and his grandmother made everything they ate from scratch, a quiet, idyllic getaway compared to Montclair. Despite the age gaps, the boys were always really close in part because of football. I looked up to both of my brothers. I believe that's why it came so natural to me, uh, seeing my brother being able to throw the limp of football field. Uh, to me, it was, it was amazing. Uh, it, it didn't matter what park we was in, everybody would stop and stare at this ball floating 100 yards across the field. I can remember they would sit at the edge of my parents' bed, and I would, I would run from the living room I would try to dive over the top of them as if I was diving over the top of the school and touch them. Because we're all tight, you know, till this day. It's nothing, nothing we wouldn't do for each other. Derek says Lamont's life had been on a solid path with sports. And after high school, Lamont did in fact go to college, a junior college in Oklahoma. But even though he'd had experience with the rural life, he didn't like it and didn't stay long. Derek said he came back home and started working. When I finally asked Derek about the game, he told me it was a sore subject. It's hard. It's hard to remember that game because it because it's, it changed it changed lives. Yeah, to me, I believe it really changed my brother's life. His life probably was supposed to be the way it's supposed to be, win or lose. But I just think uh, if they would have won that game, things would have been different for him. When Derek told me this, I felt a wave crash over me. Because for nearly four years, this had been my working theory. The game had affected Lamont in some significant way. And now, here was his brother telling me as much. Marianne told me in 2019 that Lamont had struggled with drugs. And now Derek seemed to be saying the same thing without being explicit. It sounded to me like Derek was suggesting Lamont might not have gone down this path if he had more options coming out of Montclair High. We're not rich, but my, my mom and dad always worked. And as long as we did what we had to do, 
they got what we asked for. And to to grow up like that and then, you know, see change taking place. Can't explain it. After watching Lamont go through so much heartbreak, Derek told me he coped with it the only way he knew how. He felt a duty to finish what his brother had started. Then he starts walking me through a different game a few years after Randolph Montclair, a game that means the world to him. As the Mounties quarterback in 1994, Derek was clear with his team at the beginning of the season. Their goal was to win a state championship. This was after the disastrous Len Rivers era. Montclair had hired coach Ed Labita, Jack Davies' old right-hand man, and with Derek at the helm, the Mounties have a stellar 9-1 record. He helps get Montclair football back on track. And like his brother, Derek leads the team all the way to the final. It seems like it was a Cinderella type of story. We end up playing the same team he played. The difference was we had to go and play them in their backyards. Yep, four years later, it's the Mounties riding the bus into Randolph to face the Rams at John J. Bauer Memorial Field. The pressure is on. Everybody knows what's at stake. Some Mounties fans are wearing homemade t-shirts that say, unfinished business. The Pontons are all there in the bleachers to support Derek, including Lamont. Jack Davies is there too. The game begins and Randolph almost immediately takes the ball down the field and scores a touchdown to take a 6-0 lead, similar to 1990, when the Rams also scored on an early drive. Reminds me of 1990, Brian. The two teams went down to the wire. They call it the Miracle in Montclair from a Randolph perspective. For Montclair, it was Heartbreak City on a December 1st, 1990. Here on December 3rd, 1994, Montclair trying to turn the tables. And Derek, well, he's not playing his best. And I think I threw my second interception. I was a little frustrated. I kind of was, you know, I was down on myself. Then Lamont climbs down from the bleachers and finds his little brother on the sidelines. He told me, you know, keep my head up and read the defense a little different and and everything will be fine. Almost immediately after the pep talk, Derek goes out and throws his first touchdown pass of the day. The game is coming down to the wire, just like it did in 1990. Hot time from the shotgun. He fakes. He throws long for Ira Williams. Touchdown, Montclair. Ira Williams and a 19-yard TD reception. And the Montclair Mounties have taken the lead 13-12. And the Montclair fans who remember that 90 epic battle have to be pleased. Derek's second touchdown pass puts the Mounties in the lead. And they'd stay there. They beat Randolph 22-12 and win the state championship. If you watch the game tape closely, you can see the final seconds tick off the clock, then Derek takes a knee and bows his head in prayer. Before he can lift his eyes back up, a man in a burnt orange hoodie sprints towards him on the field, then swallows him in a bear hug, squeezing tight. The man buries his head into Derek's chest. It's Lamont. After the game, Derek is interviewed by reporter Steve Tober. Derek. We can't help but remember your older brother, Lamont, was a quarterback for the 90 team. Is it kind of a revenge for Big Brother out here today? It wasn't so much a revenge. I just wanted to ease a little bit of his pain that he was having. So I, I told my team in, in the beginning of the season, this is where we're going to end up at, and this, this, we're going to have to win it. Derek dedicates the game to Lamont, 
hoping this is what he needs to let go. At the end of the game, I, I said on TV3 that I was trying to ease a little bit of his pain because I knew it. Like, you know, his life had already started changing, if you get what I mean. So the only thing I could do was win that game. That's all I could do. But I knew from us winning that game, it helped him mentally. In Montclair, the 1994 win helped heal some of the wounds from the 1990 game. In an interview with the Herald News, Lamont said, It's like a huge weight taken off. For a long time, I couldn't forget that we were robbed of that championship. That game took so much out of me, you don't know. So much happened afterward. But now it's behind me because of Derek. Now maybe the nightmares won't come because now that part of my life is over. As I was looking into Lamont's life after Montclair, I pulled his records in public search databases and found a series of mugshots. He's been arrested a lot over the years, mostly for theft. In the first photo, he's a young man with bushy hair and a goatee, his angular shoulders still framed with muscle. But in the most recent one, his face is fraught and weathered. There's a single tear trickling down his left cheek. Derek told me he passed my message along to Lamont, but he couldn't promise that he would talk to me. I never heard from him. Aside from Lamont's family, there was one other person I wanted to talk to who I thought might be able to shed some light on his experience. Someone who understands the pressures of being a star and the crushing expectations to achieve greatness. Hey family, this is Quintus McDonald coming to you, Montclair Mounties class of 1985. You know who it is, the 40 deuce in the building. Quintus is a former NFL player for the Indianapolis Colts. These days, he works as an advocate for disenfranchised communities. And in the early 1980s, just a few years before Lamont's time, he was the Mountie star linebacker. In 1983, Quintus led his team to the state championship, ending a painful 17-year drought for the school. It was a victory that solidified his place in Montclair history and turned him into a local celebrity. He would sign autographs after games and get hounded by fans while he was shopping for groceries. Then in 1984, a year after the championship, Quintus was named Defensive Player of the Year by USA Today, like the best in the entire country. He remembered having to do a photo shoot for the cover. It's kind of weird putting my jersey on and the pants on without pads and posing for a picture was kind of goofy, but I you know, took the pictures and that uh, the morning that came to school when they delivered the papers, um, they brought two pallets of papers in uh, to the school. And I think that my, my classmates and the town itself enjoyed it more than I did. When the issue comes out, everyone in school has a copy. You can imagine it being the kind of thing that takes over the hallway chatter for the day, everyone passing the paper around. On top of all that, his phone was ringing off the hook with calls from college recruiters. When they couldn't reach him, they'd go to his mom's job. All the attention was flattering, but it was overwhelming for an 18-year-old kid. I was that guy and not a person. I felt completely alone in the midst of all kind of noise, all kind of jubilance, and I absolutely felt alone. Today, Quintus is recovering from addiction and alcoholism. He's outspoken about his personal journey. He's sober now, 
and helping others through his nonprofit foundation. He even wrote a memoir. When I interviewed him earlier this year, we started talking about the early days of his addiction and how it all started. And I was floored when he told me about the first time he drank and got high. It wasn't at some rager that got out of control or with a bunch of friends he was trying to impress. No, the first time he got wasted was after losing the 1982 state championship game to Union. And like in 1990, he said it had to do with a bad call from the ref. He was just a sophomore in high school, 15 or 16 years old. It was a power scenario for me. What I saw was men in striped suits making a decision that affected a group of kids and we had no power. They've got the power, they get to do what they choose, whether it's right or wrong. And it, and it was blatant that it was wrong, but they did it anyway and got away with it. And I made a decision that, that I was gonna get loaded. I just, I did not want to feel that pain. He didn't know it then, but alcoholism runs in his family. Where the, the quote unquote normal person's body saying that's enough, you know, don't, don't drink anymore. The phenomenon of craving takes hold of me and I'm not going to stop until, you know, <laughs> I pass out. Um, no more liquor stores open. There's nowhere I can get anything else to drink or drug to do. And you cross that line unknowing. When I brought up Lamont and the struggles his family had shared, Quintus's voice softened. It's painful. I, it's just about him seeing that there is hope again. And, and prayerfully, prayerfully, this will help him get that, make a decision to go and get the help that he needs. Um, because there's so much that he has in, inside him to give back. I see you, you getting emotional, obviously. Where, where does that come from? It's empathy. It's empathy because I know his pain and I know what it feels like to be hopeless. But I also know what hope feels like. Gary Sistrunk knows that feeling too. He has struggles with alcohol. He told me the game was a hard thing to get over, but it wasn't just that. As a young man, he never really learned how to deal with anger or grief. I guess it's, you know, to suppress, you know, suppress certain memories or whatever. I mean, because it's, it's, it was something that's not easy to get over. And, you know, that's what people do. They either turn to alcohol or they turn to drugs to, to not think about something. Multiple people told me there's a deeper story here. They felt that the 1990 Mounties lost more than just a game. They also lost out on what could have been. It's kind of like the movie Everything Everywhere All at Once. Imagine one single event leads to another and another and another, like a butterfly effect. The way I see it, it's not so much regret as a deep curiosity and longing for a different version of yourself. Gary was a junior the year of the game, and he often wonders what his senior year would have been like if they'd won. There's always the, the what if, you know? What if we did win? Who knows if coach would have left? Maybe colleges would have reached out to me or, you know, a lot of other players, you know, maybe I'm pretty sure it would have opened up some doors for a lot of us what if right what if we won
Gary didn't end up going to college. And despite all the talent on that 1990 team, a lot of those players didn't end up playing at a higher level. And I wondered why so many former Mounties seem unprepared for life after football. Montclair High was a good school. They offered AP classes, and a lot of their students went to good colleges. But some players told me there was very little focus on academics if you were on the football team. Grades were only discussed if you were at risk of not being eligible to play, even though Coach Davies was also one of the school's guidance counselors. Football was the priority. Garland Thornton told me he'd thought about going to college, but his father had died during high school and he couldn't afford it on his own. I felt there wasn't enough resources from the school. If kids needed help or needed more guidance, it wasn't really there. You were just left to fend for yourself to figure it out. And I, I, I did wear that for a while. I did wear that because I was one of them, and I was embarrassed to say it. I was like, you know, because everybody felt that I should have went. Dyro Patterson was recruited to play for Ramapo College, a small school in northern New Jersey. But he told me the team wasn't much to speak of at the time. It was like the Bad News Bears. Like, that's who we were at Ramapo. And it was like all the misfits from different towns in Jersey. <laughs> they all came to Ramapo. And without guidance from his mom or older sister or the structure of a solid team, Dairo quickly lost his way. We would go to the dorm and just, like, a box of Philly blunts. A box, I think, 30 come in a box. And we would smoke all of them. Just all 30. Like, you can't get any higher. Just smoked, 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 smoked. And uh, I wasn't going anywhere. My life was just marijuana and uh, alcohol, you know. And then I had a son. Next time on Lights Out. I was, like, still angry. Like, yeah, why is this guy calling I was upset for years, but I learned a lot about myself, you know, um, how to handle adversity. It's just one of those moments that uh, kind of follows you around the rest of your life. What happened to us, it shouldn't happen to anyone. And I got on my knees and I prayed to the gods. I said, please don't let this happen to these kids. I don't want to go through this again. I'm like, who is calling my name? It was my dad. Lights Out is a production of Campside Media and Entertainment One in association with NJ Advanced Media and XTR. This series was reported and hosted by me, Matt Stanmeyer. Naomi Brauner is the senior producer, and Kim Baikema is the associate producer. Additional production support from Natalia Winkleman and Campside senior producer, Lindsay Kilbride. Our story editor and executive producer is Emily Martinez. Mixing, sound design, and original music by Ewan Leitremuen. Additional engineering from Blake Rook. This series was fact-checked by Lauren Vispoli and Matt Giles. Special thanks to Robert Fox, Chris Kelly, Steve Politti, Anthony Pacillo, Jeff McGrath, and Paul Spahala. A special thanks to our operations team, Doug Slaywin, Ashley Warren, and Destiny Dingle. Our executive producers are Lee Eisenberg from A Piece of Work, Justin Lacob from XTR, and from Campside Media, Josh Dean, Vanessa Gregoriadis, Adam Hoff, and Matt Scher. If you enjoyed Lights Out, please rate and review the show wherever you get your podcasts. Mm-hmm. 
Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Hey folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF podcast and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. 